0: Lord God, we exalt you this morning, and we just come before you here and gather today in this company of believers. Lord, we glorify your name, we lift you on high, we just pray that you would be exalted above all else in this place. Lord God, I pray that we would, Lord, that we would lay aside anything that would threaten to take your place here, Lord, but that you would be put first, that you would be risen above all else in this place. I thank you and praise you for the opportunity just to say a few words to hopefully bring glory to your name, Lord Jesus. And I pray that you would speak through me as you would, Father, and be glorified. Amen. Good morning. Um, For any of you who don't know me, Uh, I'm Mark Carlton, and I have no uh, ties with any of the other Carltons in here, so don't, don't, yeah. No, that's a lie, and I shouldn't start my testimony with a lie, but um, I promise everything else will be the truth. Uh, For the last year, my wife, Chelsea, and I have been living in northwest Montana, and uh, we've been really enjoying life out there, and it's, um, it's been an awesome adventure, but we're always thankful when we can come back here and, and just meet with all of you guys and come back to Providence. Um, I think it's always special, just since I've been, able, I've been lucky enough to be here since the very beginning of Providence, seven years ago now, and it's awesome to see all your faces out there and, and what God has done in this place. So I just want to uh, share a few things from my life. It's basically going to be a short overview of my life um, and my testimony. and there'll be a few you'll you'll know that there'll be a few uh, very specific things that have happened in my life that have shaped uh, who I am in Christ today. So, I have a verse written here somewhere, doesn't matter, I believe I know it. It's a simple verse from Proverbs, and it is, the heart of man plans his ways, but the Lord establishes his steps. And I think that's kind of been my life, and I think it's been all of yours as well. Each one of us has something different that we can point to where we had plans and had set plans, things that we wanted to do or accomplish or make of ourselves. And God kind of smiled and said, well, I got a much better one for you. So I was uh, born not far from here in Emily, Minnesota, to awesome parents, John and Janet Carlton. And I had a pretty amazing upbringing. I don't think I can look back and see something negative I have only positive feelings for for my upbringing and my uh, family my brothers and sisters uh, mom and dad did an, an amazing job raising us and calling us to be men and women of God they put their life into raising us and making sure that we knew that Christ, was prominent in their life, and Christ was put first. So, I'm ever thankful to God for my upbringing. Although I know that in my younger years, I, I didn't know how to, I didn't see that. I didn't see it as clearly as I do now. Now that I'm adult, and I, I see life in a much different way than I did when I was five and six and up to ten I, I just feel like so much of my life at that time was kind of taken for granted and that I, I knew God died on or Jesus died on the cross for me and I knew that I was saved but I didn't exactly know what I was saved from I didn't see my sin I thought I was I don't know if I thought I was a good little kid but I didn't see my sin for what it was. I didn't look into the eternal eyes of God and see his purity and then see my sin compared to that. That came a little later for me. That came in my, I think, mid-teens, and it was a time of my life. It was kind of the first time, um, when I was younger, I, I spent time reading the scriptures and uh, I memorized and and all of that but it was a little more of a chore then I believe and it was kind of in my mid teens that I started to to really seek God in the scriptures and um, there was many people that encouraged me to do that um, one of them being a a rather intense brother in- law that many of you know and he he really pushed me to just delve into the deep truths of the gospel, to study doctrine and to study theology and to, to know the depths of Scripture. And so it was that time in my life, I believe that I really started to just see who God was and just see the heights of God's glory and to see the depths of my sin and what I was born into through the sin of Adam. It was a it was an awesome time. It was a hard time too, but it was it was awesome just to to seek God like that and to see him in a way that I never had before. Um after that time, through my later teens and I graduated from high school, I knew that I wanted to get away for a while. I wanted to do something, I wanted to do some sort of a ministry, something Far away from America. <laughs> I just wanted to get out. And it was really neat how that came together. I uh, I emailed my my friend. He's a friend of our family, Devin Munz. And he's an older gentleman. And I know he'd done a lot of traveling and a lot of ministry. And I emailed him. I said, hey, Devin, do you, do you plan on going anywhere long term soon? Because I, I really want to go. And it wasn't the day before that he had had an extremely vivid dream of going back to Bosnia and Herzegovina where he has been multiple times, but he had a dream of going there and staying for a year. And it wasn't the next day that he got an email from me asking if he was going anywhere, if I could come with him. So it was just it was just God leading me into this pretty cool season of my life. And I, uh, it was a few months after I graduated, it was December of 2005, that I uh, got some luggage for my birthday and threw all my stuff in it and headed off to Bosnia for seven months. And it uh, it was a wonderful time in my life. It was God opened my eyes in that time to... He opened my eyes to his heart for the nations and just to see that we are far from the only people in the world. Because I feel like if you grow up in a small town, you don't get out, and you just have the idea that the world's pretty dang small. And it is small in a way, but it's also very big. And God has a heart and a calling for people of all races and all nations. So it was an amazing experience to see that country and to see God's work in it. It's a really hard country to minister in. There's not many Christians there. It's predominantly Muslim. And also a mixture of Catholic and Orthodox Christian is by far the the minority in Bosnia. But it was through that time there that I dove deeper into scripture as well. And I read through the whole Bible during that time, those seven months. And I memorized three different chapters in the Bible and it was, uh, it was an awesome time of, of communing with Jesus and then being able to take that communion and, and minister to the locals there. We worked at the local church, and we also went across the country and showed the Jesus film. I don't know if any of you have seen it. It's been around for years and years, and it's a little cheesy, but it it's pretty amazing, the response that people have to that. So I was able to go out into these little villages and pass out flyers and bring people to this to this filming or the showing of the Jesus film. And I was also able to work on the other side of Operation Christmas Child, which I'm sure many of you have filled a shoebox with gifts and gifts and sent it out. It was pretty fun to be on the other side of that and give it to the children of of hurting nations. I don't know why I have notes because I don't think I've read anything off of them. I knew this would happen. I had one week to prepare, and it was good, but Tim didn't give me 10 minutes in inside Providence before he pounced on me and asked if I would share. <laughs> he said, I'll give you some time to think of it, but it just let me know by the end of the service. <laughs> Thanks. And I started writing things down like I was going to read it word for word. I got extremely stressed out, and I tossed that aside and started jotting down some notes, and... I'm not even using those. When I came back from Bosnia, I had a plan of what I was going to do next. I'd always been interested in serving in the military. I'd always um, wanted to fly. And so I started pursuing a warrant officer program in the army to hopefully fly helicopters in the army. That was my goal. So I started pursuing that pretty actively after I got back. I flew down to Fort Leonardwood, Missouri, and got a flight physical. I studied super hard and took a flight aptitude test, and I even met before a board of high army officers and had a meeting with them. I really put my heart and soul into it and felt like this is what I was supposed to do. This was the path that I was supposed to take. And it was interesting because there were signs that it was for one, and this is the craziest one of all, but I took this, this flight aptitude test and it's pretty tough. I happened to find some great study material on the internet. And so I studied my heart out for this test and I took it and you needed a 90 to pass, 90 points to pass. And I think there was 150 points total in the test. And I took the test and I went home and I I didn't find out my results. No, wrong. Before I even took the test, I was laying in bed the night before and I just had the number 126 coming in my head. Just popped into my head for some odd reason. I couldn't get it out. And then I went and took the test and we drove back, I took that down in the cities. We drove back to Brainerd, my recruiters and I, and got into the office. And by that time he got the um the test results back. And they're like, dude, you did really good. You got a one twenty six. And I was like, What? <laughs> and then I tried to explain to them,
1: I had that number
0: in my head. And they're like, Oh, that's cool. You know. So I don't know why that happened because I'm not flying helicopters right now. But I had the number for the test in my head, and so I thought, wow, this is it. This is what I'm supposed to do. The heart of man plans his ways, but the Lord establishes his steps. It's Proverbs 16:9. I didn't realize then, but I see it very clearly now that all my plans, all my dreams, all my aspirations were just that. They were my plans, and I had my plans in a fist, and I clamped my hand around them, and I was chasing after them when I should have been holding them up to God and asking him to lead me and to guide me and to be first and foremost in my plans. But I didn't do that. And strangely, it wasn't long after this. This all happened kind of in the summer of 2007, that I was taking a road trip. I was driving back from Montana, actually where I live now. I was driving back from there here by myself straight through. And I was listening to a sermon online. And it was a sermon by John Piper, and he was talking about Charles Spurgeon. And he was just talking about some of the things that Spurgeon had gone through in his life and talked about the suffering that he had to deal with and the hardships and the trials and how it made him an amazing preacher and how through all the trials that he went through, he, his heart for God was just amazing. And his preaching, I mean, he's the prince of preachers. He's When you read his sermons you're just blown away by his language and his heart for Jesus and his love for God and I got extremely convicted listening to this message of this amazing man and I said an extremely dangerous prayer and I'm not encouraging you I am encouraging you in a way to pray dangerous prayers but be careful because sometimes they're answered in a way like you won't believe, and I prayed, God, if you need me to suffer for your name, do it. Do what you have to. Just draw me closer to you. Just make me a man of God. Well, uh, I think he waited about a month, and... (laughs) Suffering came to me in the form of a 50 caliber muzzle loader through my leg. Joel's bad. <laughs> and I love Joel very much and so it has it's awesome. Our relationship's great. No worries. He's my brother. I think he felt worse than I did but I went to his house one day and I had just bought a, a new rifle that day and I was all pumped because it was the weekend before hunting and I was just ready to get out there and shoot a deer and so we went over to his house and he decided to take out his muzzle loader and clean it for that season and didn't know that he had put it away and it was loaded from the previous year and there was a few of us in the room Matthew and Aaron were in there and Jamie and Rachel were in the other room praying. And uh, it was pretty awesome that they were in the other room praying. And Joel, just in the midst of our conversation, just didn't think and pulled the trigger on that gun. And from about three feet away, that that bullet went straight through my tibia, my right leg. And the amazing thing is... I was not shocked that that happened. There was something in me that was prepared. It was like I was ready. It was like I almost expected that to happen to me one day, somehow. And I don't know if it was because I would spent so much of my childhood dreaming of being in the military and knowing that could very well happen in the military, or just knowing that God had plans for me or was going to do something different in my life. But... I was in pain, but I had peace, and I even tried to crack a joke, which I don't think Jamie appreciated very much. She was holding my leg as I was bleeding <laughs> on her towel, <clears throat> and I said, Jamie, I've always wanted a bullet wound. <laughs> She's like, shut up, Mark, <laughs> but I was rushed to the hospital that night, and they cleaned the wound in Crosby. And I don't remember if they gave me some blood there as well, but I lost a lot of blood over the next couple of days. They gave me six units of blood, which I believe is about half the blood in my body. So I lost a lot of blood and they were going to airlift me down to the cities for surgery. And they didn't know at that time if they were airlifting me down to get my leg amputated or to hopefully just save my life because I was in critical condition and they told Ken and dad that, oh, he'll have a great life on the new prosthetics. When we got down uh, to the cities and we went into surgery, when I went into surgery, um, the doctor realized that he, he thought he could save my leg. And so after 6 hours surgery, I now have a 14-inch titanium rod all the way through the center of my tibia. But praise God I'm standing here before you. I have some complications because of it. I don't it the bullet struck the nerve going down the back of my leg and I don't have feeling in the bottom of my foot. And it's just more of an annoyance. It doesn't hurt me unless I step on a rock barefoot. That really hurts. I spent thirteen days in the hospital and I went through I don't know I think it was between four and six different surgeries, the first one being the main one and after that it was more of a there was another surgery to put a skin graft onto my leg because the exit wound was the size of a softball in the back of my calf. And they were able to sew some of it shut and then take a skin graft from my hip and fix it and Praise the Lord, it healed amazingly. I never had any effect infection or anything. <clears throat> but I stayed in the hospital for 13 days before I was allowed to go home. And when I went there and I couldn't put any weight on it for, I don't know, I think it was it was months that I was on crutches or, <clears throat> or just sitting there with my my foot up. And it was a hard time in my life because I knew, oh, I should say this, when I was in the hospital and it was fairly early on a man came into the hospital room and I don't know this man he knows someone that I know and but he came to visit me which was which was really nice of him but he said something he said Mark I just want you to know that God had nothing to do with this and this was not his plan <laughs> and I was kind of under a lot of medication at the time and didn't want to argue with him, but I said, now oh, in my heart, I said, if you only knew what God had to do with this, it might blow your mind. <laughs> so after I was home, <coughs> I I went through kind of a tough time, and I call it, to me, it's the crushing years is what I called it. And it was, I don't know, if, it's crushing time, not years. It was hard because I knew God had a plan. I knew that he had changed my plans for a reason, but I still didn't see the fulfillment of his plans ahead of me. And I knew I had to trust in him, but I also was really lonely because I was laying in my bed, my buddies were out hanging out. And it was hard, it was really tough. And I was reading the Bible one night, and I stumbled upon some verses. I think Ken actually read these verses last week. Second Corinthians <coughs> second Corinthians 127 through 10. This is Paul speaking, talking of something that he had to deal with in his life, a suffering. And he says, So to keep me from being too elated by the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being too elated. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly in my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. I had read this verse so many times before this, but this time it just blew my mind that Christ's power was being made perfect in my weakness and that when I was weak, that's when Christ could be made most strong in me. And it was awesome. And I believe that night I had a pretty good cry session and I just laid it all out before the Lord. And he brought such peace to my heart that night, just overflowing peace that passes all understanding. And from that day on, I was much closer to him. I've said since that time that the beautiful thing about being crushed is that when your face is in the dirt, the only place that you can look up is into God's face. And during that time, he called me to himself like he has never done before. He called me to such an amazing place of fellowship with him, a time of waking up hours before the sun and just pouring over the word and being with him alone. I remember just sitting down at the table downstairs listening to piano music and it was completely dark outside and just having my Bible and my study book next to it and just seeking God with all my heart. It was an amazing time. During that time, he also just called me to a a greater level of purity in my life. he drew things out of me that were sinful and that were wrong and called me to himself. He called me to live in purity and then he gave me the strength to walk away from my temptations. It was awesome because what he called me to, he gave me the ability to do. I see now when I look back at that time, that God was preparing me. <laughs> it was a much greater preparation than flying helicopters in the military, I can assure you that. Sometimes I still have a little twinge to be up there and to fly, but it's nothing like what he's given me. It wasn't long after this, this crushing time and this purifying time that Chelsea walked into my life <laughs> blew me away again. God was preparing me to be a man. He was preparing me to be a husband. And he was preparing me to be a father, which, come April, we're going to have our firstborn. We're super excited. All I can say is that God is good. No matter what you're going through, whatever you deal with, whatever trials and temptations come your way, he will give you the strength and he will be made great in your weakness. Psalm 73:25 and 26 have become my life versus what I want my life to be. It says whom have I in heaven but you and there is nothing on earth that i desire besides you my flesh and my heart may fail but god is the strength of my heart and my portion forever someone asked me once they said mark how how's your leg doing is it is it healing up are you 100% yet and i was like well i don't know what, i don't know how you know if you're 100% and he said well i I heard something interesting once that if you go a day and you don't think about it, then you're probably at least you know eighty to a hundred percent healed. <laughs> well, I wake up every day and I have a slight limp in the morning. <sighs> I can't feel the texture of the carpet under my feet, so I can't go a day without thinking about this so I'll never be fully healed. But this is what I take from that. It's not a reminder of hard times. It's not a reminder of what I've suffered because my life has been pretty dang easy, I'll admit. I haven't had to deal with much. Every step I take is a reminder of God's faithfulness to me. Every step is a reminder that God has done of what God has done in my life, and that his plans are so much greater. Every step I take is a reminder to love and to cherish my wife and my child as Christ does the church. Every step is a reminder to walk with my eyes fixed on heaven. Every step is a reminder that even though my flesh has failed, Christ alone is my portion forever, and that when I am weak, he is strong. Every step is a reminder of what the psalmist writes in Psalms sixteen, eight through nine. Psalms one sixteen. For you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, and my feet from stumbling, and I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. I've prayed a lot for healing to my leg. I've prayed a lot. And God has healed my leg. Don't get me wrong. I can do things that I shouldn't be able to do. I was hiking mountains this summer and fighting wildfires. And I shouldn't be able to do that. And I've prayed, a lot of times I have prayed that God bring the feeling back. Please bring the feeling back. But I kind of hope he never does. And the reason I hope that is I'm afraid that if he was to bring my feeling back, I would forget, that I'd forget his faithfulness, that I'd forget what he's done for me, that I would forget all the things that this time has brought me through and how much closer I am to God. And I'll never regret the change, I'll never regret the crushing, I'll never regret the hammering of God that molded me into the man that I am today. So I just want to encourage all of you today through anything that God chooses to bring you through, remember that he establishes your steps and that he will be glorified and honored in your life and that all things do work together for those that trust in the Lord. I just want to read one more section of verses here to finish off. thought I had it marked. It's from Romans 8, this is one of the chapters that I memorized when I was in Bosnia. Sadly, I can't quote it to you right now, but Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 35 to the end of the chapter, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life... Neither angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights or depths, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Remember today that he has delivered your soul from death, your eyes from tears, and your feet from stumbling. And if you know Christ, you will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. Amen.
1: If you would bow your head in prayer with me. O Heavenly Father, as your son gave us directions on how to pray, hallowed be your name. We say your name is hallowed because of the testimony we just heard. You are glorious and worthy of praise. You are honorable and true. Everything that you do is perfect. Lord, we sought out our way. We had plans as Mark shared and testified. But when we saw our our life in the hand of our sovereign God, suddenly the horizons of opportunity opened up into heaven eternal. Lord, there is no plan in the hand of man that will produce fruit, anything except death and destruction. But the plans that our God has for us, the future and the hope that are prepared in our Lord Jesus Christ in his sacrificial death for the future of those who love him cannot be calculated by earthly treasure. Your blood is so precious and it is so exceeding in our mind as we think about these things today that we simply pause and say, hallowed be your name. Now I pray as we open your word for a few moments this morning that you would increase our awe, our attention, our zeal, our devotion to the almighty glorious name of our Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I invite you to turn with me to Psalm 29. Our Psalm a Month series brings us on this, the 29th month, to Psalm 29. I so appreciated Mark's testimony. And in a way, the end of the psalm comes to mind as I heard him speak. The last verse, the last half, may the Lord bless His people with peace. But the rest of Mark's story, the journey between him praying that dangerous prayer and when God answered with peace, is more like the rest of this psalm. One where the Lord has a shock and awe campaign, and he reserves the right to manipulate circumstances, trials, and we'll find in this psalm the forces of nature as well to draw our attention to his holiness in such a way that we, by his grace and by the means his spirit employs, will never forget. And Lord, as we read these words, I pray that the intention of the author, namely the spirit working through your servant, would do the same for us. Read with me, if you would, Psalm 29, verses 1 through 11, this chapter, this glorious chapter. It's entitled, A Psalm of David, Ascribed to the Lord Glory. And here we read verse 1, Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings, ascribe to the Lord, glory and strength ascribe to the Lord, the glory do his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. The voice of the Lord is over the waters, the glory of God thunders. The Lord over many waters, the voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forest bare, and in his temple all cry, glory. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. May the Lord give strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people with peace. One of the most amazing conversations I've ever had in my life took place last summer. You'll forgive me if you've heard this illustration now shortly, twice. I felt compelled in the course of this interchange to defend the glory of the Lord because I sensed that there were comments and things said between me and someone else that required me to do so. I feel the weight of this call pretty strongly sometimes, especially when I remember that at the end of the week, or the beginning of the week, I should say, each Sunday, I am called to step into this pulpit and to deliver to you the authority of God's Word, not because I said so, but because He said so. And if there's ever a time in conversation where I sense that someone is saying in so many words, God has not spoken, I'm getting to the point where I cannot rest very easily without addressing it, and if need be, quite directly. After several hours of back and forth, and basically apologetics, we came to the point in our conversation, myself and this other gentleman, where the very glory of the Lord in its most basic form was questioned. And what was offered to me in conversation was the notion of a God to be feared, is ridiculous and it did cause my blood to boil some and I found myself responding if God is God must be feared if there is a God he is just and there is a God and he will require a reckoning and depending on how you stand Depending how I stand in relationship to the holiness he requires, if you haven't felt the ultimate of terror in this life, you certainly will on that day, and you're only Your only reassuring thought is that you come to grips with a God whose majestic voice thunders from the heavens, a God who must be feared, that requires a reckoning. And upon that realization, you find yourself on your knees, as it were, and bowing in humble submission before His sovereignty. I'm adding a few things here That I didn't quite include in this conversation. But that was what was undergirding my thoughts. Now exactly at the moment. When I said. God must be feared. It was as if a reenactment of Calvary. In one small way. Occurred in our experience that day. Suddenly the sky became so dark. And one of those almost instantaneous uh, summer storms rolled in. And the sky and the whole environment was as dark as twilight. And a clap of thunder that silenced my voice, silenced his voice, shook the landscape, shook the building, interrupted our speech. And I'm telling you with the authority of Psalm 29, it was the voice of Almighty God. The God of glory thunders. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. And suddenly, any vain and foolish attempt to declare or state autonomy before His holiness was silenced in an instant. There was an involuntary shudder through both of our skeletal frames. And we left our chairs just a little bit in spite of ourselves. Because no man if the thunder is loud enough, if the noise is close enough, if the lightning strikes with this blazing, blinding glare right in front of us can ignore that power. Thank God for His grace that He gives us a storm so that hearts blinded by sin and eyes corrupted by this world's distractions can see for a moment a fraction of the power and authority of, of Almighty God. As we read this psalm, it occurs to me in my study, upon going over it several times, it's as if in its literary form, it takes the shape of a storm. A storm much like the one that interrupted our conversation last summer. If this psalm is taken as it ought My sense is that it should reproduce the effect that that thunderclap had in my ears, in our ears, in that conversation, in our hearts as we read, ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength, His glory, His power, His majesty, His splendor, His holiness is such that does not just demand that the trees clap their hands, That all creation bow before His Lordship. That the souls, the creatures, the living beings on this earth, on this planet, say glory to Your holy name. But it commands the attention of every celestial being, the seraphim that worship before the throne, the myriads, the host of angels that gather before His presence in glory, ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. And as we think about the glory of the Lord, And how much ascribing, if you will, he deserves. And the worship, the splendor of his holiness demands. The great tragic thought is even for those of us who have been convicted, who have been changed, who have been brought slightly, at least in our attention to his holiness, still have so little in our voice and in our affections and in our energies to offer to him. And this is why I look forward to heaven. And I hope you are looking forward to heaven as well. When every tear and distraction is washed away, when every last pain and hurt is but a distant memory, and we have all our faculties to offer everything His glory deserves. But in the meantime, I'm thankful also for the wake-up call of a thunderstorm. I was praying for one this morning. I thought a great amen might be one of those thunderclaps from the heavenlies. The Lord didn't provide it, so try to. So just rely on his word. In his commentary on this psalm, Joseph Carl reminds us if anyone should ask, Why is the Lord to be worshipped? David answers two ways meteorologically and theologically. Is that an amazing thought? The Lord ought to be worshipped. Why should He be worshipped? The heavens declare the glory of the Lord. The firmament shows His handiwork. The forces of nature are indeed a misnomer. The forces of nature are the forces of God. And if you've ever experienced the forces in nature, you've experienced the forces of God. And so you have Every meteorological reason to pause, revere. Go ahead and let that shudder run through your spine and then let it be followed up with a reassuring sense of mercy, peace, and strength. Oh, sweet, sweet strength and peace. But notice those reassuring thoughts don't come till verse 11, they don't come till the very end. And thus in the shape of this psalm we're reminded of this theological truth until we come in contact with the authority of God such that it shakes us to our core we will be poor stewards and we will take lightly and trivially and as if we deserved it the grace and mercy of that sovereign Lord. Because His justice is never compromised by His love. And His power and authority is never It's never questioned, though he be merciful. And where is the reconciliation then? On the cross, I tell you, on the cross. And therein lies the depth of our Lord's pain. Consider first in this psalm the name of the Lord. 18 times in 11 verses, we have the name Yahweh or Jehovah, that name reserved for the Lord. And as I read Psalm and study, I'm brought to conviction by the Jews themselves as they wrote, often didn't write, or spoke, often didn't speak, the name that we're reading 18 times today, translated for us in capital letters as Lord. You see, there at least was a cultural deference to the reverence of God that caused the Jew, the faithful and orthodox, at least those that feared his name, to take so seriously the name of the Lord that many refused to write it. There's a theological term called circumlocution. I was teaching to my boys. Hopefully they would tell someone else and really impress them at their uh, learning ability. They've soon forgot it. But Circumlocution means speaking around the thing you're describing. In Hebrews, the author says he sat down. Right hand of the majesty on high. Instead of saying directly, he, s- he sat down at the right hand of Yahweh. And here we're reminded by this cultural fact that there was a people and ought to remain a people that are so in fear of the Lord that they take his name very seriously. And though they may have overcorrected at times, and there may be something superstitious about what, uh, the motives behind not writing or speaking the name, nevertheless, we can learn this. The name of God is so high, so hallowed, so powerful, so majestic. There is so much splendor and holiness wrapped up in even the title of his name that it ought to cause us to shudder as if we've heard a clap of thunder that would deafen the ears or a flash of lightning that would blind the eyes each time it's spoken in our hearing. Consider the name of the Lord in its first sense, as I've been sharing with you its title. The title, Yahweh. Its meaning given to us, you can study later. Ex- Exodus 3.14. Yahweh comes in a burning bush. Though Moses can't see the glory of God directly, nevertheless there's this manifestation of His evidence before Him. This bush is burning, it's not consumed. And Yahweh introduces Himself to this lowly shepherd he gives him his charge and he says, I am that I am. What does that mean? It means that the point I was arguing in the conversation I opened as illustration is true, that God Almighty is the unchanging, eternal, self-existent God. He is the I am that I am. What happened in his fear, in his sinfulness, When Moses dare question God's will for his life, the I am that I am spoke from the burning bush with shuddering words to the core of his being, who made your mouth? The self-existent, eternal, unchanging, invisible, immortal, omnipotent, immutable, eternal, omniscient, I am that I am did. That's who. Exodus 6, verses 2 and 3. The declaration and introduction of Yahweh to His covenant people. And you'll remember the circumstances and the storm that appeared there. I heard a tragic statement once from a pastor. I won't say his name. I'm not coming to you firsthand. Something akin to God does not prepare hardships he doesn't will for you to go through difficult circumstances and he said read the new testament is perfect theology he never blessed a storm and again my blood began to boil as someone was recounting to me this and they asked me my opinion and i have to tell you i wanted to oppose it the way i did Opposition to the fear of God in the other conversation because it occurs to me from Noah's flood to the storm on Sinai to the night of Calvary to the book of Revelation when the Lord reveals Himself graciously and realistically, if you will, in a way that actually displays the fullness of His character and attributes. He reserves a right and often sovereignly employs not the elements of nature, but His Not the forces of nature, but his forces in nature to draw the attention of sinners to his almighty power. God forbid that we wouldn't listen to his echo in the thunders of a storm. God forbid that we would deny it's his power in that heat of the lightning, they tell me, is multiple times the temperature of the sun. Because if we lose that, we lose the meaning of our God that's available to us in Scripture, and we certainly can't understand Psalm 29. Consider the name of God in the second sense, His reputation, and His renown. For the people that this psalm was written to, and by extension us today, God's elect, His covenant, His chosen, His covenant people, His chosen ones, our attention is called Every time we hear the name of the Lord to this idea, His renown and His reputation evident in His acts in history. Time and again when His people fell away, time and again when they needed a wake-up call, it was when the altar points of their experience with their God Almighty had been forgotten. They had forgotten that the sea was split and dry land was made where there was no way possible outside from the sovereign almighty intervention of the omniscient, invisible one to lead them to the promised land. Too soon they forgot that manna was delivered to them not by some plant-bearing fruit, but by the scattering of almighty's fingertips for them to gather each day to sustain their very being. How dare they complain about the taste. And too often we forget the metaphorical equivalent of the fire that guides us by night, and the cloud by day. We would be so lost that we charged out on our own, and God left us to our own devices. Where would Mark be this morning if it wasn't for the spiritual equivalent of God's direct and sovereign and sometimes fearful leading, fearful in the sense of awe, seriousness, reverence, respect. And finally, consider the name of God 18 times And this is what I'd like you to imagine. Every one of these repetitions of Lord. As I trust it appears in your text before you in capital letters, imagine it as a thunderous lightning bolt in the shape of this psalm. Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord, glory and strength. And 18 times it's as if lightning strikes. And I read this psalm and I hear a storm 18 times thunder rolls deafening the ears with the idea with the revelation with the truth point number two we've considered the name of God secondly I beg you to consider the course of the storm the course of the storm is not just spiritual but there's a material path as well we'll talk about some spiritual aspects in point number three but first consider that this storm has given a geographical tract. A geographical tract. Verse 3, the voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders over many waters. What waters are these, you may ask? Well, in the one sense, in the poetic sense, these seas of tumult, the waters that we see in Hebrew poetry, are the chaotic, fearful elements. But the voice of the Lord is over them. In fact, in verse 10, he sits enthroned over them. And scripture tells us time and again to illustrate the scope of his sovereignty and those forces that, we, that appear most uncontrollable to the hand of man, they sit as a droplet in the palm of the Almighty. Those are the waters over which this sovereign storm is whipped. But more specifically, we find it as the Mediterranean. Imagine a hurricane gathering force. Gale winds, and if they had meteorologists at the time, they would run down with their windbreaker and their hair going straight sideways in the wind. and You know that annoying interference of the wind and the mic? And they would report, because all by all apparent measures, that their radar and their eyes afforded them, we might have to evacuate the premises. Because the voice of the Lord in verse 4 is powerful, and the voice of the Lord is full of majesty. And this voice is such that it breaks the cedars, the Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon, and here the storm has touched land. It's north of Palestine. There's a mountain range there in Lebanon, and the storm begins to blow in. And what is it doing? It's smashing trees. It's causing animals to go into premature labor. It's rolling over the hillsides, it's dumping torrents of rain, and it's moving south. We follow the track of this storm and we find it, we pick it up in the second half of verse 5. He makes Lebanon to skip like a, a calf and Sirion like a young wild ox. And Sirion, I'm told in my studies, is one of the furthermost mountains that you see on the northern horizon of Israel. Mount Hebron it's also called. And now the storm has arrived just north of the border. But it will breach God's holy land And it will come further south still. The voice of the Lord flashes with flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness, shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. And now the hurricane has arrived over the open wilderness areas. And I cannot help but think of when the voice of the Lord broke through in the wilderness. And the voice of one crying there said, repent, the kingdom is at hand. Prepare the way of the Lord. It moves farther still. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth. The voice of the Lord strips the forest bare, and in his temple all cry glory. And perhaps here we see the storm of God's glorious revelation has met the central place and meeting location geographically at this time, Jerusalem, the temple, and it's arrived. What is the response of his people? It's glory, glory. And what is the gift to the same? Strength and peace. Spurgeon says, as he introduces us in the commentary, in his commentary to the implications of this psalm, he says the following quote, quote, Natural causes, as men call them, are God in action. And we must not ascribe power to them, but to the infinite invisible, who is the true source of all. And this is exactly what those who recognize the power of God, in all ways he reveals himself, say, when either a storm of life or a storm of natural elements occurs. Thirdly, in this message, I would beg you to consider the power of the storm. Substitute, if you will, for the power of the storm, the power of God's voice. And read with me again in verse 3. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. He's about to answer this question. How is the voice of the Lord powerful? In what ways is the voice of the Lord full of majesty? In verse 5, the answer comes ringing to our ears with a thunderclap of clarity. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. Consider the power of God's voice. What is His power like? It's like the power of a storm that invades a calm, serene summer day. And suddenly, you're tying down tarps, you're closing windows, maybe you're dodging glass, You're under a desk, you're looking for the storm shelter, or you're like me earlier in this year, you're edging towards the center of the building. Because if just five or ten miles an hour were to increase on the average wind speed, you know full well those rotting poplar trees in your yard may be your undoing. I just cannot explain to you, except to call your attention to your own experience, those thoughts as the storm whips up around you. Here's a question for you as well. Which trees are most likely to be struck by lightning, by the finger of God? Is it not the ones that are most tall, most prominent? Is it not, if we were to think of the metaphorical equivalent, those who are so secure and see themselves rising above everyone else, whether it be the trees of the field or the people that God sets in slippery places. Those that are most tall and secure in their own strength are most apt to be the lightning rod of God's judgment. So what does he call us to do? Bow ourselves. Humble ourselves. How should a storm influence our thinking, our mentality, our attitudes, our affections? Make us poor in spirit. Make us quake before him. Make us humbly cry, Abba, Father. I am a sinner, I am undone. But for the grace of God, lightning strikes this head. Consider the power of the storm. Consider the power of God's voice. It's described as breaking the cedars, shattering them as it were, splitting them down top to bottom with lightning. Secondly, shaking the mountains. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars, but also second half, verse 5. He makes Lebanon to skip like a calf. And the reference here is to some 900-mile mountain range and Syrian like a wild ox. The end of that mountain range, Hebron, as we explained, a 9200 elevation size mountain off the sea level of the Mediterranean, they shudder at the presence of God. If the mountains shake and bow before His presence, how much more you and I, who are mere clay, We are no rock. The rocks, the scriptures say, will cry out if we are silent. God forbid that mere clay would not quake in his presence and give him praise and ascribe to him the glory his name so deserves. There's an illustration I can't resist, but to add right here, there was a mountain in Palestine that was built in part by the hand of man at the time when Christ arrived on the scene. It was Herodian, I think. This mountain, Herod had added to the top. He had built one of his preeminent architectural projects to bring renown to his name. Today, I found a picture on the internet that I saved to my pictures. It wasn't a picture of Herodian, though that might be an education tool. I was most inspired to teach my kids something about a pile of spheres about this big that I saw a family take a picture in front of. I'm talking a haystack of round pieces of boulder like this. I looked at those and I had a sense immediately what they were. I thought, I'll bet you those were, were the ammunition of the Roman war machines in AD 71. And I imagined how they flew through the air and struck that seemingly impenetrable castle and bit by bit Herodian was redu- reduced to dust. God can employ a trebuchet, God can employ a lightning storm, but ultimately no man will stand in the presence, declare his autonomy, say, I am to be worshipped and live. He will eat grass, he will bow before God, he will be judged in hell eternal, he'll see his works cave under stones hurled by invading forces. But one thing he will never do is successfully declare that he's in competition with God's Almighty glory, the mountains shake. If you think you're a mountain, you will crumble. When Jesus was preaching and walking on that very ground, in and around where that castle stood, that would have been the shining point of Herod's achievements. I love this historical fact in the providence of God. When you think about the time, 0, 30 A.D., what do you think of? I'm sure you think of what I think of. Christmas, Jesus, wouldn't it be amazing to walk the earth with this man? Wouldn't it be amazing to sit there with rapt attention with his disciples as he explains the kingdom of God? Wouldn't it be amazing to follow behind him and share in the footsteps of one who was commissioned by the Almighty, prophesied of old, and who is teaching of things to come and hang on his every word? You and I, as blood bought believers, I trust that's the way we think. But when was the last time it entered into your head? You know, Herod was an amazing architect. That guy was on par with Alexander the Great. Man, did he build an incredible kingdom. You know, there's been other men in history whose wickedness in the historical account is eclipsed by man's sinful record by saying they're great. And I'm telling you what, if it wasn't for a suffering servant who came and died for the sins of mankind, Herod would be in that camp. Herod's forgotten today. He's seen as a deviant, Pervert, with the sign over his head, wanted. And his fame is eclipsed by who? Our Lord Jesus Christ. And his castle was destroyed by what? By spheres this big. You can go there now and you can send a postcard to your family. But nobody barely even knows who Herod was. But just about everybody in this nation has heard the name Jesus Christ. And I trust many more will hear it from your lips in the future. Herod's mountain was destroyed. Jesus said to those onlookers, and I imagine as one tour guide points people's attention, this is true, one tour guide in Palestine points people's attention to that mountain. They say, do you know this may be where Jesus was looking when he said, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you can say to that mountain, be picked up, cast into the sea, and whatever you ask in prayer and faith, it will be done for you. Isn't that an amazing thought? Perhaps he was talking about the political ramifications of one who would declare himself as lawless, being torn down, utterly forgotten in history, and supplanted by the great King of kings and Lord of lords, our Savior Jesus Christ. His mountain was torn down. And whether or not he was looking at Herodian when he said those words, but point stands and Herod falls. I love that thought. Consider the power of the storm breaking the cedars, shaking the mountains, flashing forth flames of fire. In verse 7, the voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. I'll pause there at flames of fire. Here in the Hebrew, it's divideth, or here and out, cut into tongues and streets. And the picture is the sovereign is in the heavenlies, and he shaves off just a bit of his glory, and it's a lightning bolt multiple times. The heat of the sun, as I mentioned, that incinerates anything in its path. You remember the language later. There's another stormscape, if you will, that was experienced by the apostles in Acts chapter 2. Suddenly, when those who said, what shall we do, Lord? You're a king and you're leaving. When will you set up your kingdom? And the words that were promised, go, stay in this place, wait for the Holy Spirit. And when you come, how? Will and then this is my imagining a little bit more in the conversation. How will we know it's arrived? Oh, you'll know. It will be like a storm. Go read Psalm 29, meditate on that for several days. And when you see Psalm 29 fulfilled in your midst, you'll know that the Spirit of God has arrived. And sure enough, what was the sound in the ears of the faithful, on their knees praying that the promise, hope against hope, white knuckles towards heaven would be fulfilled in their midst? The sound of a rushing, mighty wind filled that place. And I'm sure it was the sound of a storm one that fills your ears, the air rushes by such that it feels like its power could suffocate you as a stalk of grain driven into the side of a tree by a tornado. And that rushing mighty wind came and God in sovereign power peeled off, as it were, some of his glory and divided tongues of fire stood on the heads of his commissioned unlikely band of just a few. And they went out and turned the world upside down the voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness verse 8 the Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh in the interest of time I've mentioned it once already I'm reminded of the voice of the Lord coming through one John the Baptist crying in the wilderness and those who are compelled to go out to meet him to hear the sovereignty of God spoken and hopefully the promise of the Messiah arriving, and sure enough, he would in just short order. The voice of the Lord is powerful enough to shake up the elements of nature, to send a shudder through the core of every creature, and to strip the forest bare. But in closing, and finally, I want you to consider this point. Consider not just the course of this storm, but consider also the course of worship. You see, there's also a direction, a trajectory, if you will, a movement, an approach, a design, a pathway, a course of worship. I was looking for one word that described all those, and I couldn't, couldn't find it, so I just listed them all for you. I just see in my mind's eye the meteorologist saying, this is the trajectory of the storm, the course that it will follow. And it struck me after reading this psalm, it's not incidental. It's not unpredictable from heaven's point of view. It is a design that has purpose. And so the design of the storm as it's given to us and its geographical path is also mirrored by a design, by a design, by a path for our own worship. And this comes in the opening and the close of this psalm. I'll read to you 1 and 2 and 10 and 11. Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. And then in verse 10, The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as King forever. May the Lord give strength to His people. May the Lord bless His people with peace. Do you see the ark here? Three times we are ascribing, directing, offering, venerating, giving the Lord praise. Where does that incense arrive? It arrives where he's enthroned, verse 10. And twice it says the Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. Here, our focal point of worship. The worship goes up. It meets the throne room of God. And what comes down, as it were, verse 11. May the Lord give strength to his people. May the Lord bless His people with peace. So, the order of worship prescribed for us in Psalm 29 goes something like this Fear the Lord, offer Him praise. It arrives at His throne, and at the end of the storm, a still small voice Strength and peace. I think about the storm of judgment that was eclipsed by no other in Scripture. We think about Noah's flood. There were just two places, if you will, that the waters did not reach. They covered up in judgment every living creature, the tallest trees of Lebanon, and the highest mountains of the day. The Word of God says they covered them by 15 cubits. I'm told by perhaps the most insightful commentators that this was more than likely the draft of Noah's ark. In other words, the water had to clear the tallest mountaintops by about 22 and a half feet because heavy laden, the ark, which stood 45 feet tall, needed that much room to clear a mountain like Mount Hebron. Isn't that an amazing thought? There was only two places at this time of judgment that the floodwaters did not reach. Spiritually, that place was the throne of God. Verse 10, the Lord sits enthroned over the flood. There is no circumstance, there is no act in nature. There is no unforeseen circumstance in God Almighty. There is nothing that reaches the level of his throne so as to threaten him, challenge him, befuddle him, or consume him. And the second place, the floods were unable to reach as they rose except for an occasional wave. 15 cubits up, that merciful ship. And within that boat were eight of God's elect. And he carried them through those waters of judgment and landed them safely on the mountain, caused his earth to bloom, preserved them and enough livestock to repopulate the earth such as we have it today. Would you trust your life and all, not just yours, but all humanity to a vessel built by someone who probably never so much as built a ship before, who slaved away for 120 years with only his sons to help and their families? In a worldwide deluge and cataclysm such as this, only a fool would. But the fact is, this was not Noah's effort that saved mankind. The reason mankind was saved just as it is today, materially or spiritually, is because the Lord sits enthroned over any flood. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood of sin when the ark of His Son is entered by His people, by His elect. The Lord sits enthroned as King forever and rules in blessing with those who are found at His return the day of the Lord in his favor and by cursing and judgment for those who are not but nevertheless he sits enthroned and he gives strength and he blesses his people the last storm I'll remind you of is Calvary itself Matthew 27 45 50 and through 54 the voice of Jesus Christ was heard the most powerful tearing sound in all of human history was the second sound that was realized. As the obsolete temple, the veil there was ripped from top to bottom. And I would remind you of the response of one pagan soldier who said, truly, this was the Son of God. An hour so dark that Luke describes as the sun failing was an occasion For a broken, lost, deceived sinner who had set his face politically and spiritually as we all do against God and His people, confessed at that storm, the storm of Calvary, truly this was the Son of God. As we read Psalm 29, and as we bow before the cross, and as we consider where we stand in light of His awesome power, may we say the same, truly Jesus Christ is the Son of God and our Savior. Let's bow our heads in prayer. O Heavenly Father, as we realize through these pages of Scripture that you have gone to great lengths to make your name known, we shudder at the fear that in our sin we might find ourselves going great lengths to ignore you, to deny you. Lord, if there is any awakening, if there is any spark of faith, it is the hand of the Almighty that sits enthroned over the flood. If there are any who need that spark this morning, may you use this word by the power of your spirit applying it to the hearts of those who may lie outside your good graces, and that they might enter their ark, Jesus Christ. And for those of us who have maybe been tempted to grow weary, if not already grown weary and well-doing. Let us consider the power of the storm in the Scripture and in nature and bow before your authority once again and so as to appreciate your loving kindness, your mercy and your grace, your strength and your peace to utmost measures. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen.